guys. Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. I'm Jackie. And I'm Megan. And today we're doing another episode where we fight. Just kidding. But we are going to talk about our different views on the Eucharist slash communion slash the Lord's Supper. Different denominations call it different things. Very confusing. And we also wanted to say at the beginning, too, that obviously we will in no way cover every single aspect of this conversation, even as we are preparing for this and we were talking about it beforehand. We were like, oh my goodness, there's so much to cover. Everyone would hate us if we just kept talking on and on for hours. So this possibly could be a part one. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. No one knows the future except Jesus. Oh my gosh, we're going to be talking about Jesus today. What a coincidence. Funny one, Megan. Good one. Um, Yeah. So yeah, even when we were doing this Google Doc... There was just so much I was just deleting before this. I was like, I cannot say all of this. There is too much, even in my research. This is obviously, it's the Eucharist. It's communion. It's one of the centerpieces of the Christian faith, almost. Well, I guess it's it's less big deal, which we will cover in some Protestant denominations. But at least in the Catholic faith, it's the source and summit of our entire faith. So, of course, there's a lot that we've written about it. True. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to have a lot of disagreements about the Eucharist, but we'll start with our points of agreement. So we agree that communion is a sacrament, so it is more than just symbolic. It is a time of communion with fellow believers and a proclamation of unity. We agree it is covenantal. We receive spiritual nourishment from the elements. And we agree that we experience the presence of Jesus. Megan believes in spiritual presence, where Jackie believes in spiritual slash substantive presence. Substantive. Substantive. Guys, I cannot say that word. I always start (laughs) saying substantiation, and then I get it all wrong. Transubstantiation, substantiation. So, yeah, I believe it's a spiritual and And substantive substantive presence. It's okay, guys. I'll help her. Thanks, Megan. (laughs) Yeah, so obviously, like we said earlier, there are a few different perspectives on this sacrament, so we just wanted to kind of briefly give each of them a a fair definition. So when it comes to the Protestant views, there's kind of two main ones. There's the symbolic view, which is held by, I would say, probably most evangelicals, which would include like Baptist, Presbyterians, Reformed and like other independent non-denominational churches. And this is the view that the bread and wine that are presented in communion are symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus, but they in no way turn into his actual body and blood. So the elements are to remind us of the atonement Jesus made for our sins on the cross. So they really emphasize the whole like, it is finished, do this in remembrance of me. And even amongst evangelicals, this view historically has been kind of broken down into two categories. So the first was proposed many years ago by a Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. He held that the communion ceremony was purely symbolic, and that was it. Zwingli was, he was really out there. He hated icons. He was very, very specific. Whereas John Calvin, he was a contemporary of Zwingli, agreed with him that it was symbolic, 
But he added more meaning to it, stating that when we partake of the bread and wine, we receive the spiritual nourishment from the Holy Spirit, and that it actually helps strengthen and increase our faith so that we're actually communing, hence communion, with the crucified Christ. So they argued back and forth about that. The second view held by Protestants would be consubstantiation. And this is largely held by like Lutherans, Episcopalians, and I believe Anglicans. And this was the view actually proposed by Martin Luther in response to the views of the Catholic Church on communion. So he stated that the bread and wine do not change into the actual body and blood of Jesus as Catholics held, but rather that Christ's body and blood are presented, quote, in, with, and under the elements. So he explained this using an analogy that in the same way heat is present within a piece of hot iron, so Christ is present within the elements. And if I'm being super vulnerable and honest, I don't completely understand, but that is hopefully a clear definition or yeah, hopefully I gave that a fair shake. So Jackie, do you want to just give a brief maybe explanation of or definition of transubstantiation before we go into our beliefs? Yes. So the Catholic view is transubstantiation. So Megan's view would be more consubstantiation, but my view obviously in the Catholic church is transubstantiation, which is that the change that takes place during the sacrament of Holy Communion, which we call the Eucharist, and this change involves the whole substance of the bread and wine being turned miraculously into the whole substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. So we would think the very substance of the bread and wine changes that even though it's under the appearance or the accidents they there's a distinction between the accidents which is what it just looks like and the actual substance of it it looks like bread and wine it actually it's very substance is the body and blood of jesus christ which is the difference because in consubstantiation they don't think it's substance changes so we go back to like the very the mass um in the early ages, in the second century, we had the witness of St. Saint Justin Martyr for the basic lines of the order of the Eucharistic celebration. And you can look in um, paragraph 1345 in the Catechism if you want to read through all of that. Um, but this teaching, it's definitely difficult for followers to accept. And many of them in the Bible even left be because of this, because it's hard to comprehend with our human intellect. Um, Megan was saying, you know, I don't completely understand this. Well, I, you know, it's very hard to completely grasp transubstantiation. And we really, we look at in the Bible where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me in the same way. Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die, as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. And as I said before, the disciples did not understand and grumbled because Jesus had said this. Um... But Jesus does not back down at all. And we see this as a sign pointing that he literally meant it turns into his body and blood. And we'll get more into 
our disagreements there later, but the Greek word that he uses literally means to gnaw. And that's something we think is pointing toward um, transubstantiation. But those are the basic things about transubstantiation, that it's the substance that is changing. It's actually literally the body and blood of Christ. Great. So I'll just maybe like briefly go over my um, view of communion. So I believe that when we approach the table with the right heart, obviously, that we do actually experience the real spiritual presence of Christ, Um, although not a substantive presence like we mentioned before. I don't believe the elements are actually turning into um, the substance of Jesus, but that this spiritual presence is unique from the daily presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we're communing with the crucified Christ. So I believe that this sacrament was instituted by Jesus and it is special. It's not, it's separate from just our daily interaction with the Holy Spirit. Um, I, it's also significant that this is a covenant meal. So it's a commitment of God to forgive our sins through Jesus and we receive spiritual nourishment from partaking in the elements. So through this time of remembrance, Christ's spiritual presence fills us and nourishes us. So it's more than just a symbol. We come to the table to be filled. And that's why I think it's so beautiful that that this is in a meal, that we're eating and taking apart these elements and, and actually consuming them, that, that Christ is filling us. This is also a time of remembrance. So Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, proclaim the Lord's death, right? So we're declaring the pinnacle of our faith, which is Christ's sacrifice for our salvation and our receiving of himself for our salvation. And I always think it's important to note that this originated as a Jewish meal, which was the Passover. And this was a meal of remembrance. So in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, there was when they um, were in the process of leaving and hopefully going to the promised land, there was plagues. And one of the plagues was an angel of death was coming to take the firstborn of every family. And God told them if they painted the blood of a lamb, a blemishless, spotless lamb over their doorposts, that the angel would pass over that home. And so it's beautiful that at this time of them celebrating this Passover meal, Jesus basically shows the disciples that he is the culmination of that, the fulfillment of that in the ultimate Passover, that he is the true Passover lamb, that it is because of his blood that we don't die anymore. And so when it says that Jesus blessed the bread, this was a Jewish blessing. It was a baraka, or in Greek, a Eucharista, which we get Eucharist. And so it was a spiritual ritual with the understanding that the food was a gift to be received with thanksgiving. And this was done at all meals. And so it was remembrance by participation. So it's not just a call to historical memory. I think sometimes, you know, there, there gets a bad rap when Protestants emphasize like that this is in remembrance. This is in remembrance. A lot of times Catholics will push back on that and be like, no, it's not. It's not in remembrance. Like you're just like seeing this as a symbol. But that term in remembrance in Jewish tradition, it wasn't just a call to his, like to remember something. It was active participation in the saving events of history. And I just think that's so beautiful. Communion is also a time of communion with fellow saints, and it's a proclamation of unity. First um, Corinthians 10, 16 through 17 goes over this. So we partake of the elements together as the body of Christ, 
And communion offers an opportunity for corporate confession, repentance, remembrance, and worship, not just individual. We're all united with all of God's people all around the world throughout history, a great cloud of witnesses, like it says in Hebrews, and we identify ourselves with the body of Christ. And that's something that I think I actually do have a problem with the way Catholics um, practice communion is because they do acknowledge the legitimacy of other Christian traditions, but they deny us to come to the table. And I think that's wrong to deny fellow believers access to the table because Jesus instituted this meals for Christians. So if we're going to acknowledge that someone is a true believer, that they shouldn't be denied access to the table. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 talks about he was rebuking the Corinthians because they were denying people access to the table. And he said, anyone who partakes without discerning the body is sinning. And I think that we cause unnecessary division when we remove people from the table over matters of interpretation or doctrine. Um, and I know Jackie has a, a rebuttal to that. <laughs> but my last kind of point would be that communion is also a time of personal reflection and repentance. So there is that corporate element, but there is also an individual element. So when I proclaim Jesus's death, I'm also proclaiming that I died with him so that I might no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again in 2 Corinthians 5.15. So communion offers us a tangible reminder to reflect on why Jesus had to be crucified, my sin, and what this means for my life. It's a reminder to be intentionally repentant for my sins because those are the things that nailed Jesus to the cross. Yeah, there's a lot there that I agree with. And um, just in a response to the emphasis on remembrance, um, we would would agree that it is not just the word used is not, oh, just think back and remember when that happened. But it is an active participation in the saving events in that saving work of Christ. That's something that we agree with. Um, In the transubstantiation in the mass when he's holding up the host the priest says in the catholic mass do this in remembrance of me oh yeah i was saying that catholics often think yeah. protestants are like too much emphasizing like that protestants think it's just yeah. a time to remind themselves so yeah and i, I wasn't think um i just want to point out that something that a lot of protestants would agree with us on that we do agree um we take it in different ways and apply it differently obviously because we don't have the same view of the eucharist but that's something that at least Megan and I would agree on because would you say there are some Protestants that would say it is just remembering or no? Um, well, maybe I would say they're probably incorrectly catechized, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if they're attending churches that are really, really into a memorialist view, which is mm-hmm. like really following in the steps of Zwingli, I, I don't think even Zwingli would have that understanding but i think unfortunately that could be an understanding that comes out of that is like oh this is just a time to like think about the fact jesus died and it has no implication on my life but i would hope that like any pastor out there wouldn't be teaching that yeah so i think it still would be slightly a different meaning because the way we think that we actively participate in god's um crucifixion and saving work for us is different than how um, I'm a, someone that practices memorial would think, 
But we all still acknowledge, obviously, because of the Greek word, it's different than just remembering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something that we would agree there with. Um, and I guess a Catholic response to... Uh, first, I think that we um, interpret that verse from Corinthians differently, which I can get into more later. But also, we would see in our view, because the Eucharist is like the source and summit, the way that we see it, that is quite literally the body and blood of Christ. If you don't believe that, then we would say you shouldn't be receiving the Eucharist. Whereas if you're not in the Catholic faith, or well, I guess also the Orthodox, um, they also believe in transubstantiation, then you you shouldn't even want to receive what we're doing because it's like we are saying this is quite literally the body and blood of Christ. So we think what separates us is people denying transubstantiation. So that's just the way that we see it. It's just, it's totally different because Protestants would be like, oh no, you can come and receive from us. But it's like a lesser, it's, I'm not, I want to say lesser, but it's less intense than the Catholic view of it because we think it turns into quite literally the body and blood of Christ. And if you don't believe that, then you shouldn't receive it and you shouldn't even want to i i don't even think people that are baptized catholic that don't truly believe that it is the body and blood of christ and like actively reject that should be receiving communion um but unfortunately a lot of catholics do because a lot of catholics don't understand that teaching which i think is like they just don't know so they're not really actively rejecting what they don't know but if you're actively going into it and you're like nope i don't think this i don't think it's transubstantiation then I don't even see why you would want to receive at a church that thinks that that's what it is or what's happening. Um, but that's just, I, I, Megan and I have totally different mindsets when it comes to this because I'm just like, I don't even know why you would want to receive at a Catholic church. Um, yeah, but that's why non-Catholics can't because they don't believe or believe in what it is. Um, we would actually let Orthodox receive at our churches because they do truly believe in transubstantiation if they couldn't find like an Orthodox church to receive at, but they don't normally want to. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I guess I could say that you pointed to a verse in first Corinthians and we actually see it in a totally different way. We have, uh, first Corinthians 11, 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And we interpret that as that you should not receive communion in an unworthy manner, not having anything to do with division, which is what you um, pointed to earlier, which also we think points even more to a literal meaning of body and blood. Well, we would say an unworthy manner in the, the emphasis of that passage is he was talking about unity. And so if you're approaching the table but there is like disunity and you're excluding people then that's taking it in an unworthy manner because the point of communion is communion with your fellow brothers and sisters in jesus too but we also think that if you don't believe it's literally the body and blood of christ then you like we don't think there was even any difference back then between that you were believing what it was so it's a totally different context now when we disagree on what it even is I think that changes the whole scenario. Um, So now, okay, I guess we can get into a different kind of format. So Megan laid out for me some objections that she has to transubstantiation um, as to why she doesn't believe in transubstantiation. And then I had some responses to that. So Megan can give her first one. Yeah, I think I have... I think there's four. Yeah, 
for problems. I was like, that makes me sound so bratty, but you guys know what I mean. Okay, yeah, so I think one of my first objections would just be, and this is like a super common one that Protestants always bring up, um, so I'm sorry to sound tired, but that transubstantiation is a re-sacrifice of Christ. Um, so the Catholic doctrine, in my understanding, teaches that the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus and that there is a re-sacrifice of Christ. So this is a quote from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They say, the church gathers to remember and to represent the sacrifice of Christ in which we share through the action of the priest and the power of the Holy Spirit. So in my understanding, this means that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're again breaking his body and drinking his blood. And the writer to Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered himself once for all, having entered heaven with his blood and finished the work so that Christ cannot be, nor should he ever be offered up over and over for the repayment of sins. I feel like the Bible is quite clear that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a one-time offering and payment for sins that never needs to be repeated. Um, so if Catholics don't believe that communion during Mass is offering up payment of sins, why does Christ have to be re-sacrificed or re-presented in his sacrificed body and blood? Mm -hmm. And my response would be that this is a misunderstanding of our belief. It is a representation, re not a new sacrifice. We are not sacrificing Jesus over and over. Um, you are correct in pushing back against re-sacrifice. This is a critique emerging mostly from Calvin during the Reformation. For us, communion is a representation, but specifically a form of remembering. And this is something that we just talked about earlier the greek word used to do this in remembrance of me um i can't say it it starts with an a megan do you know how to say that anonysius mm -hmm. nope i can't i don't even say it um <laughs> but it's not something um it actively recalls and makes present the power of that experience in our case the eucharist so we were talking about earlier how we both agree that it is a participation in that saving work of Christ and that's what we think we're doing with the Eucharist we are making present that experience because uh, God is out of time it is rather a part of sacred time binding past present and future together such that we make the real experiences experiences of that salvific event um, there again the past sacrifice of Christ is real now and simultaneously we gain a foretaste of the future when God makes all things new as we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. This way of approaching the Eucharist views it as a first fruit of Christ's resurrection. This way of actively remembering the past also implies that the church makes present this reality of Christ's presence to the world now. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same, the same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the matter, the manner of offering is different. And this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. And that last paragraph I just said is from the catechism, catechism paragraph 1367, if you wanted to go back and read that. Cool. So then my objection too would be um, that I don't believe there's any indication that Jesus's words in John 6 were intended 
literally in the way that Catholics take them. So Jesus frequently spoke in spiritual terms. Um, you know, so some examples, he says, I'm the bread of life. I am the door. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Um, so he often uses those kinds of phrases and symbolisms um, in a way of explaining spiritual truths to his disciples and to the people around. So in the context of John 6, Jesus is telling his disciples that they must eat his body and blood. That's John 6, 53. Um, and so I just feel that it's clear that he's speaking in spiritual terms. He says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and truth. And, or sorry, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. So we don't believe that abiding in Jesus means that he's literally a vine or that Jesus is literally bread or literally adorned to heaven. Yeah, so obviously Catholics have a different interpretation. We think that especially with the Greek word that he used, meaning to gnaw, that he meant that we would be gnawing on his actual blood and flesh. And I guess we disagree on the distinctions with the Greek words. Um, A lot of this knowledge is from my spiritual director, I have to say, that I um, am not this smart. I'm really happy to learn this much from him. But um, he pointed out to me that there's not a real distinction built into the words, um, I can't say them, between spiritual eating and literally eating. Um, And he put it in a larger context for me where he kind of was saying to me that in John 6... Um, the pushback shouldn't be whether it's literal or not, but whether Christ took on real flesh and blood. And if yes, what does this mean? In other words, how is John's Christology, which is what he's talking about, is connected to the Eucharist? And he was saying that John is literally, through this textual play on heavenly, on heavenly descent, manna, bread, body, and blood, and the connection of eating and salvation, describing God's real presence in Jesus, Christ, so to speak. This is how God wants to save the world. Now do you believe this and will you eat of it? He asks us. The Eucharistic connection is that in celebration of the Lord's Supper, we confronted with this question ourselves. Do we believe that Christ is who he said he was? Did what he said he did? The gnawing, as I pointed out earlier, really brings this home. Gnawing as an animal gnaws really emphasizes the real flesh and blood of Jesus, the Son of God descending from heaven. In other words, John 6 is a Christological statement with the Eucharistic implications. The Eucharist is where one meets the Lord. And I feel like we could literally do an entire podcast episode on just this little section because, and I feel like that's maybe something that we should do because there's so much more here if we get into the Greek words and into like, oh, John was talking about his Christology, which also leads into the Eucharist. Um, Because I think the main differences with Megan and I is that we don't really see a distinction between spiritual eating and actual eating, which is the emphasis that Megan has. Um, So maybe that's something we could do later. Well, so because I did do a Greek word study on. So there's two words for eat in the context of the verse. So there's phago and Mm -hmm. trogo. And so the... Fago is a very common Greek word used for eat. It's like used everywhere, whereas trogo means to gnaw, to chew, which is the one you're talking about. So that's stressing like a process, right? And so in the verse, Jesus says, your fathers did not eat fago manna, and he that eats trogo of this bread shall live forever. So what we believe that is being emphasized there is that when the Jews ate fago manna, it was to satisfy their appetite. They were hungry. 
but the verb trogo means to feed upon. So it is always in the present tense, so it's a continual ongoing action. So therefore, when Jesus said, he who eats, present tense, ongoing action, trogo, this bread will live forever. It means a continual feeding, something that needs to be done on a constant basis to satisfy a spiritual appetite. So that we've, so we think that in this verse, Jesus is emphasizing the spiritual meaning that he is the true manna, that this manna satisfied a physical appetite, but Jesus now f- satisfies our spiritual appetite. So that is, I think that a lot of times the Greek word is being stretched there in a lot of Catholic sources. Um, that they like try and use that as a way to prove and I don't think it's really proving and we'll obviously just have to agree to disagree Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't see that as proof that it is substantially substantively becoming the body and blood of Jesus yeah I feel like we could keep going with this but maybe we could do more on this later Um, sure So then another objection I have um, would be that, um, and I think this is also just kind of like a point of confusion, is that the Lord's Supper was instituted before Jesus is crucified. So once again, the Mass is supposed to be like a representation or a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. And so in my understanding, according to Catholic theology, the bread and wine become the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. But Jesus institutes the supper in John 6 before he was crucified. So are we to conclude that at the last supper when they were at the table, that when Jesus broke the bread, it literally became his sacrificial body and the wine, his blood, even though the sacrifice hadn't happened yet. And so if the elements did not literally become Christ's body and blood at the very first communion, why does this take place after I just don't think that there's an indication that the disciples thought the elements changed or that they would offer up like adoration to the elements or, um, you know, save them to offer adoration later as Catholics do at their churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, And our response would be an interplay between the New and the Old Testament. Um, The Passover meal is completed on the cross when Jesus gives up his life. There are four cups in the Passover. The Passover meal, the fourth cup, is the cup of praise. Jesus leaves before the fourth cup and goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he prays for the cup to pass him, the fourth cup of praise. He then doesn't drink anything until right before he dies on the cross. Jesus dies on the, Paso- dies on the Passover. He drinks from the hyssop that they would use the blood to put on the door with the lamb of the Passover meal. And the lamb of the Passover meal is a type of Jesus because the lamb had to be made male without blemish and eaten. And John 6 makes no sense not in light of this. Uh, The early Christians and church fathers believed in the absolute presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, we would say. And if you want to think, uh, read more about the fourth cup, you can, uh, there's some, there's a YouTube video I can put in the length uh, from Scott Hahn. He has a lot of books on it, um, some lectures. But that would be our understanding and explanation um, of that in a response to Megan's objection. All right. And then my last kind of final objection here um, is just an understanding of the incarnation. So I can put this source in our notes as well. Um, but I think that the 
the attribute of omnipresence, right, which is that God is present everywhere, is not something that we see in Christ's humanity. So when he was on earth, he was temporally based. So when he was in Nazareth, he had to stay in Nazareth. He wasn't all places at once. And so if we believe that the bread and wine are literally becoming Christ's body and blood, so much so that we would put them in a box to be presented and adored at a church, does that mean that Christ's body is all over the place? I mean, all over the world, because there's Catholics all over the world, and it's being in every church every Sunday at Mass. I just feel like that's kind of a rejection of the incarnation. So the biblical doctrine of the incarnation states that the word, was, which was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is a mystery known as the hypostatic union, and that is that in the one person of Jesus, there are two natures, divine and human. So Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time, and he will forever be fully God and fully man. So as fully man, Jesus, in his physical body, could not be in more than one place at one time. So to say that the bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Christ, I feel like violates the doctrine of the incarnation because it's stating that Christ is physically present all over the world every time Mass is celebrated. And for Jesus to be man, he has to remain attributes of humanity. So his body is localized and not physically omnipresent. And so I feel like his ascension into heaven is what allows this spiritual presence to be a reality at communion, not his physical body. And um, an author I really love, Dr. Vanderlee, he wrote a book about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, He has this quote that I think is really beautiful. He says, Christ's bodily ascension and session at God's right hand becomes the anchor of his true humanity. And the supper unites us to him by feeding us by his spirit with the glorified humanity of the ascended Lord. The Lord's Supper is both a sign of absence and presence, both of which must be carefully balanced and deeply appreciated. Too much emphasis on Jesus's presence dehumanizes and universalizes him. Too much emphasis, excuse me, on his absence calls into question the work of the spirit. So this eschatological absence, this divine irony, you know, we talk about this as like a now and not yet reality, which I believe all sacraments are. It's pointing towards what we truly want, which is to abide with Christ in heaven. So although we're experiencing Jesus's presence now, we long for the day that we'll experience him fully, completely. This talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even then, as I'm fully known. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting perspective because I'd never heard that before. Um, And I disagree, obviously. Um, I don't think it's a contradiction at all. Um, I think Jesus also rose from the dead, which would reject his quote-unquote humanity with this logic. And he was fully man, but he was also fully God and can do all things that God can do without taking from his taking away from his humanity. I think the hypostatic union is a mystery, and it's hard to understand, just as transubstantiation is. So 
I just don't at all see it in any way violating the doctrine of incarnation. I think it actually goes perfectly with his, um, as I said earlier with John 6, his Christology of God quite literally becoming man in the flesh. I think within the context of John 6, it also points to that Eucharistic understanding of it becoming Christ's flesh. Um, But also I think, yeah, that's something maybe we could get more into later. But I, that was, I think, Megan's last objection. And now any final thoughts that you might have, Megan, on the communion, the Eucharist, any other points or things you wanted to bring up? I guess one, one thing I wanted to know, and, and this has to do with the fact that non-Catholics can't receive, which I know is like a point I always harp on, but I think um, there's there's a lot of aspects of our faith that we, we don't completely understand um, or that, you know, we, we might even be wrong about. I, I'm sure I'll get to heaven and we'll discover like, oh my gosh, like I thought justification was a one-time event and turns out the Catholics are right and it's a process. Like, I'm sure I don't have it all right, um, that there are aspects that I, I don't understand or I'm, I'm misunderstanding and... And that's the beauty of heaven is when I finally get there, I'll be like, oh my goodness, I finally get it. And I'm excited for that. And so I think to put an emphasis on having this belief or having this perfect knowledge in order to be able to partake in a sacramental institution that Jesus made for believers, um, I think is harmful. And and I know, you know, because I worked at a Catholic organization and I had to participate in mass um, and I had to just sit down and watch everyone take communion, that that's hard because it feels like you're a second-class citizen, that you're not a true Christian or you're a lesser Christian. And so I think it's it's less of like, oh, well, why would you want to partake if you don't believe? And it's because for me, it's not about me. It's not about my belief and am I right? It's this is what Jesus has done for me. Um, and and I think that's why I, I feel so strongly about it because I think in, in order for us to actually get unity to have true ecumenicism we have to acknowledge that there are just aspects we're not going to understand and that there's room for disagreement because we're brothers and sisters and when we get to heaven we'll understand it and that we can come to the table together um and so i and i know catholics disagree with that and i respect that which is why i would never like enforce myself in the mass um but but I do think it is something really important that I, I, that I do strongly have an issue with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair to say. I think that's something, yeah, we're just, we're going to disagree on. Um, but I appreciate, I never really fully understood before why, like a good explanation as to why a Protestant would be upset. Cause honestly, the Protestants I really met would be like, I don't want to take part in that anyway. <laughs> or like, cause they're like, what you guys do is weird, some weird ritual thing. So it's like, it is, um, I guess enlightening or helps me better understand why a lot of Protestants are really offended because yeah, I just never really understood that because as a Catholic, we're, we don't even, we don't really participate in like protestant ceremonies especially if it's just memorial because um they're not recognizing transubstantiation or what the eucharist we think the what jesus meant when they were instituting it um so in ways we're not even really supposed to even receive it like protestant churches because it's not understanding what we think jesus was instituting with that mystery so we just have totally different mindsets when it comes to the Eucharist um 
And I think, yeah, maybe that's something that we won't be united on. Well, I mean, some Austin might yell at me for this or Trent Horn because I came on and said that, <laughs> no, you should have hope for unity of all Christians at the end, you know, before Jesus comes back. But I don't know. Yeah, it might be something that we're not all going to like fully understand or, you know, be united until we're in heaven with Jesus himself. There won't be any Eucharist or communion. We'll just be with like just Jesus in the flesh himself up there, which is going to be dude. Can't wait. Really freaking cool. It's going to be awesome. Anytime now, God, you can come back and anytime now. <laughs> Honestly, we literally say that all the time. We're like sitting there at work. We're like, okay, Jesus. Any minute now. <laughs> so um, when you said you were coming back, all the apostles, none of them like got married or started families. They're like, we need to be. <laughs> preaching to the people about jesus and then they were like oh shoot um he's not coming back in the next like 50 years 100 years uh, <laughs> i don't really know what he's doing out there <laughs> just hanging out just kidding he's not just hanging out but right well let us know if you want further points clarified um, or questions answered obviously like we said this was like such a brief vague overview and there's like so much more we could get into like every single point probably every single sentence we could like delve into for an entire episode uh we'd love to have other people on to share their perspectives on this topic so yeah let us know um what you all think what your views are and what you want clarified or what you would want someone else who's an expert to clarify (laughs) instead of jackie and i (laughs) yeah because there's just like no way i don't think even Megan and I, with what little, honestly little that we know about this, even said everything that we would want to point out just for sake of brevity. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we could definitely do a part two. We could do more of like, I don't know, our own even personal experiences with communion. I mean, there's just so many things we could do. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself did not understand transubstantiation and how to really, I still have a really hard time with it. It's something that I... You know, I don't go up to the Eucharist and see, like, it looks like a piece of bread. And I'm just like, oh, I just know, know that it's Jesus, like, in the deepest part of me. That's something that I, like, have assented to and just, like, I do truly believe that, obviously, which is why I still receive in the Catholic Church and I'm still Catholic. Because if I decided it wasn't true, I'd be like, peace, this is weird. Um, but, yeah, there's just so much that we we could talk about. But, yeah, we would love to hear from you guys, too. Yeah, it's a touchy subject. It's obviously something that, like we said, it's almost hard to see any unity ever taking place over. But I definitely think the first step is just talking about it and understanding each other. So that's what we want to do. 